And Job acts himself as a foreshadowing of exactly what he prayed for when he asked God so desperately that a mediator would be there for him. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Job chapters 32 through 42. That's where we're at tonight. Um, basically what this is going to cover is the final section of the book of Job. If you break it down into three sections, this is what the book of Job looks like. The first two sec or the first two chapters are the first section. This is really Job's dealing with suffering. Satan comes before God, challenges God that there's nobody who truly worships him. Uh, nobody who wouldn't curse him, uh, basically stating that he's caused sin all over the world. And God's response to Satan is, what about Job? Uh, Job, look at him. And Satan says, well, of course, he's, he's wonderfully blessed. Look at everything that he has. And uh, if you just let me mess with him and take away what he has, uh, he would have reason to curse you. He has no reason to curse you right now because you've given him everything he could ever want. Look at how wealthy he is. Look at how big his family is. He has. Look at all the livestock he has. And uh, God says, I'll let you test him. And God allows suffering to Job. And Job loses everything. He loses his kids. Uh, he loses his, his land. He loses his, his livestock. And all of his wealth goes down the drain. His family is gone. And he's tortured by this. And he falls into grief. But he never curses God. In fact, he, he says, he tears his clothes, pours ashes on his head, um, and says, naked I came from the womb, and naked I'll return. Um, and he just, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he blesses God, actually, and never curses him. And so Satan does the same thing again. He goes to God, and he says, look, I've just, look at what I've caused on the earth. And God says, you, look at Job. You messed with Job, and he still, he blesses me. And so God allows Satan to test him further, uh, and he comes after Job's physical health. So he loses all of his wealth, then he loses his physical health. Boils pour over his skin. He's everything except dead. Uh, the only person he has left in his wife in his life is his wife. His wife tells him to curse God and die. Uh, and that's really the first two chapters of Job. It's Job's suffering. From there, all the way through chapter 31, 3 through 31, is the next section of Job. There's four friends who come to grieve with Job. For the first seven days, they say nothing, and they just allow him to grieve. But after that, 
Job finally speaks. And when he speaks, they tend to rebuke him and tell Job that he's wrong. And they try to figure out why what's happening to him is happening. And they end up blaming Job for everything that's going on with him. His three of his four friends blame Job for the problem at hand. And Job just tries to defend himself and say, I don't understand what's going on. I haven't done anything. I know everything that you guys know. You're not any better than me. Uh, I know what you know. So what you're saying doesn't make sense because I haven't done anything you've accused me of. So I don't know why this is happening to me. Chapters 32 through 42 are the final section. It's really where wisdom comes in. Job's fourth friend responds. And this really happens from chapters 33 to 38. And then from 38 to 42, the last four chapters, is God speaking. But Job finally gets one friend who has a little bit of wisdom. Uh, and then God expounds really more on top of that as he addresses Job and what goes on. So that's what we're dealing with today. Uh, the Really the part of the book that deals with actual wisdom and getting some understanding of all of this suffering and arguing that's been going on. So we'll pick up in uh, chapter 32, and Elihu, or Elihu, is responding. So verse 1, it says, So these three men, <clears throat> Job's other three friends, ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Basically saying they stopped talking to Job because none of, their th none of the things they were saying Job was reacting to because he didn't believe they were right. He believed he could stand independently before God and say, I haven't done anything wrong. So verse 2, then the wrath of Elihu, uh, the son of Berechel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. And so this is what's going on. Uh, Elihu, 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 whatever you want to call him, he is upset because he's listened to all of this arguing going on for so long, and it's a lot. And what he's seeing is people accusing Job, <clears throat> and Job justifying himself, but nobody really speaks up for God. There are a few moments where Job wished he could speak with God and still called God his Savior and his Redeemer, but he never defended God. And that's his gripe. <clears throat> so verse 3, it says, Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Meaning, they're accusing Job without any reason to accuse him. So they're watching him falsely accuse their friend um, based on his circumstance, not based on evidence. And no one is standing up for the goodness of God. And this bothers him. So verse 4, it says, Now because they were years older uh, than he, than he uh, Elihu, had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Berechel, the Buzai, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Uh, therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. So this is what's going on. Elihu finally gets his chance to speak. He has sat there patiently and waited through all of this arguing and all of this figuring out what's going on, waiting for his chance to speak. He didn't speak up earlier because of his respect for his elders. 
And so there's a little moment here where it says, he says, I am young in years and you are very old. Now in our culture, that sounds disrespectful uh, because you never ask a woman their age, right? But the truth is what he's actually saying is he had deep respect for their wisdom because of their age. Um, and wisdom comes with age. And so he allowed them to speak. But now that they've, they're done with speaking, he is offering them a solution or a reason for why he now has an opportunity to speak. And he's saying, from this point forward through the rest of this chapter, he's basically giving cause for why he should be allowed to speak now as the young one. And so that's what he does. Now we'll pick up in chapter 33, <clears throat> after he's made his case for why he should speak. In verse 12, he says, look, in this you are not righteous. Speaking to Job, I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon them, while slumbering on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. In order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones. So what Elihu is really saying is um, what you're doing and you're trying to come up with excuses or justifying what's going on with you <clears throat> or asking these questions, it's silly. You just have to listen and wait to hear what God says. Now, remember that this is written probably at the time of, say, Abraham or slightly before, or if not written in that time, certainly written about that time. You know, Job, Job himself, the historical figure, existed around the time of Abraham or before, which means that the written word of God does not exist yet. Scripture has not been written. This would have been the first book when it's recorded after these events. So scripture doesn't exist for them to go to God. And he's going through some of the ways that God has revealed himself to this community. He's saying some, he's spoken to some in dreams. Um, he's spoken to them in visions of the night through their sleep. Sometimes he, you can sort of audibly hear him in some ways. Uh, and then he even says that sometimes man is chastened with pain. And sometimes he uses physical affliction to get your attention to push you back in his direction. And now Job is really suffering. And so he's saying, look, you don't know what God is doing. God is greater than man. You don't have his perspective. So why are you spending so much time trying to justify yourself before him rather than listen to him? Actually try to find some time with him, you're arguing with your friends and you're justifying yourself rather than seeking out God and his purposes, which is a fairly wise thing to say. Now, in, in this chapter, he also says something that's pretty unique and miraculous to me. In verse 23, it says, if there is a messenger for him, speaking of how God may communicate to his people, it says, if there is a messenger for him, a mediator, 
one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be like young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy. He restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at men and says, uh, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. So what you're seeing is he's, he has this interesting take where he says, if a messenger was allowed, if a messenger or a mediator came, this would be the result. Someone who would prevent man from going into the pit would pray to God and delight in him, who would restore righteousness to man. Well, that sounds like a lot of foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, Elihu's not done. He keeps going on. And we pick up in, in chapter 34, in verse 5, where he says, For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water? So he's recounting what Job has been trying to say as he's addressing Job and the problems that he has with what's going on. And Job did say that he was righteous before God. Job did say that he hasn't done anything wrong. And then he also says, who is like Job who drinks scorn like water? Basically saying, who has suffered like Job? He says, who, in verse 8, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. And so Job has gotten so bad <clears throat> that Job has, he really cursed the day that he was born and wished that he didn't exist. Now he's saying, and what Elihu is taking from that is that Job is saying it profits nothing for a man to delight in God. So even though Job lived a pretty good life up to this point, he had a lot of stuff, he's now suffered so badly, he's cursing the day he was born, and saying, I get nothing from doing good from God. Now, he's not cursing God, he's cursing his life and the result of his actions. Um, and Elihu basically says, you know, you can't consider what God, God does wicked. God doesn't do wickedness, and nothing from the Almighty is sinful. You pick up in verse 12, he says, Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice, who gave him charge, who gave him charge over the earth, or appointed him over the whole world. And so his point is, your perspective is you're trying to justify yourself and judge God's actions against you. But Elihu's point is justice comes from God. It can't be perverted. Justice is God's to give. And then he makes the point even bigger when he says, who gave him charge over the earth? Meaning, who, give, who gives God authority? Nobody. God is the authority. He's the one and only creator God, the only one eternal, the only one who exists before time. Who appointed him over the world? No one. He did. He's the ultimate authority. 
No one has the ability to judge God. God is the judge. And so that's his point as he's trying to get Job to understand. You've been thinking about yourself for so long. Think about God for a little bit. And he goes more into this in the next chapter. We'll pick up in verse 11. It says, Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, you must wait for him. And now because he has not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of this folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. And Elihu's point is basically, you do not know what God knows, so what you are speaking of is ignorant. And so your complaints are based on your understanding, not God's understanding. And so your words are empty going up to heaven because you're, you don't sit in the same position. You don't have the same perspective. You don't have the same knowledge. You do not equal God. You are not as great as God. He says, bear with me a little. I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. And so Elihu really just wants to defend God. Now, there is one part of this that is, he has a point. Now, Job, he was being honest with God, and he had a right to complain, and you'll actually see God's perspective about this in a little bit. But Elihu does have a point that in all of this arguing, no one was, other than Job, was saying anything good about God, and even Job's what Job said about God had nothing to do with God in the moment. He said that he wished he had a mediator or that he knows that God will be his salvation and his redeemer. But he, he's not looking very favorably on God in the moment. And so he's really saying we've missed God's goodness in all of this. So in verse 19 of, of chapter 36, he says, Will your riches or almighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place, take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? Now, he's even pointing out, look, God is awesome. And God is the ultimate teacher. God is the ultimate one who prescribes whether something is right or wrong, not you. And so he's putting the perspective back in the rightful place. The person who decides what's right and wrong, and if anyone has done any right or wrong, is God. Let's shift the focus from the circumstance to the judge. Now, in, in chapter 37, he really he goes after Job hard in, in verse 14. He says, listen to this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Get your eyes off of your circumstance and onto the Creator and what He's done. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of His cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced, those wondrous works of Him who is perfect in His knowledge? And he's saying, just look at the world around you and what God has created and recognize that you're not the center of everything. 
and we can get your eyes off of your own suffering for a moment, maybe you can have a little bit better perspective on how good God still is. Now, finally, after Elihu is done shifting the perspective from Job and his circumstance to God, God now addresses Job. Now, I wish we could go through all four, every verse of the last four chapters. I highly recommend that you read it. It's beautiful. Um, but we're just going to try to get to the heart of it so that we can finish this overview uh, of the book of Job. So we're going to touch on important moments over the next few chapters. But the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, so first of all, I don't, I mean, it's poetic language, so I don't know exactly how God presented himself, but it may be something similar to how he presented himself to uh, the Israelites when they were escaping Egypt. But somewhere out of the whirlwind, God speaks to Job, and he says this, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So as he approaches Job, he repeats a little bit of what Elihu said. You are speaking out of ignorance because of your poor circumstance. So, again, I'll read it. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he says, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. That's a bold statement if God is saying that to someone, you know. But thankfully, Job... In what he has done, really, he hasn't cursed God, and he really hasn't done anything wrong. He's just had his focus changed. Verse 4, now God really lays into the point. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it. To what were its foundations fastened, or who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now that's a pretty bold thing to say, and it really puts the perspective clearer for Job. God says, where were you when I created the foundations of the heavens and the earth? Where were you when creation started? Do you know how it all works? Do you know what it looked like? Did you, did you put the cornerstone in its place and get the earth spinning on its axis? Did you do that? And now Job, standing before an almighty God who's already pointed out that he doesn't know what he's talking about and has pointed him back to creation saying, do you think you have the perspective that I have as the one who created all of this? On verse 18, he says, have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me. If you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? And so he's asking him questions that Job has no answer for because he's not the creator. He doesn't know. Verse 31, he says, Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? And so even in this ancient time, they had some understanding of the constellations as they look up at the stars as part of the creation. And God is referencing that. And he's saying, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Now, the interesting part about that is even uh, now in our modern understanding is that they might actually be tied to each other 
gravitationally, the Pleiades and Orion, because of their distance to each other. So even biblically, there's this strange thing that we've learned much later in astronomy. But he goes on and continues to talk about the constellations and the stars throughout the rest of chapter 38. And what better example for God to use? Now, he's talked about the creation of the earth and what surrounds Job and all things. And then he's pointed to the most amazing things. They use the, the stars light up the sky at night and they use them for navigation. And they use the constellations to know where they are as they travel about. And you, do you understand any of this, Job? Were you there when it was made? No? Now, in, uh, in chapter 39, he gets into some of the, the creatures of the creation. And basically, really getting into the detail and more of the same stuff. Job, do you understand how this works? Do you understand I created everything? My perspective is from outside creation because I made it. And that's the point. And Job finally gets a chance to answer in chapter 40. So verse 1, it says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said this, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. So now God has said, Job, you've been fighting. You've been trying to justify yourself before me. Now you have a chance. What do you have to say for yourself? Job's response is this. Now remember, Job has been complaining for a long time. But after hearing God speak, this is his response. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. That's all Job had to say. Once he's challenged by God directly, and he gets to see or has an understanding of God's true glory, and he's put in his place, and recognizes the difference of perspective that God has to him. He says, I have nothing to say. He actually says, I'll put my hand over my mouth. He's shutting himself up. Because he recognizes that before the perfection of God, he's vile. And Job, a man who God himself called upright. And allowed Satan to test because of how righteous Job was. Job's answer, standing before God, is, I'm vile in comparison. And I have nothing else to say because standing before the glory of God means that now it all makes sense. Now I see I don't have his perspective. But God challenges Job. He says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Now he's saying, but you've been complaining about what's been happening to you. Are you now willing to condemn my judgment of what I have allowed to go on? Are you willing to put that on me and say that I have sinned somehow? Can you do what I can do? Can you make the thunder happen? Can you control the seas? Then adorn yourself, then adorn yourself with majesty and plunder and array yourself with glory and beauty. Can you make yourself as great as me? 
Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. So what he's saying is, if you think you can compare to me, if you, can be, if you can be as beautiful and as powerful and as righteous as God, then by all means, you can save yourself. Well, Job doesn't really have an answer to that because he's not, and he knows it. And then through chapter 41, we get more. The rest of chapter 40 and, and chapter 41, we get more of God's description of particular beasts. Now, they're interesting. Um, some have wondered if these were dinosaurs or giant beasts or whatnot. I don't want to get into too much of that, but it is crazy to think about some of the creatures that have likely gone extinct since that time um, and what we don't see anymore on the earth. But Job got to experience whatever this is, whatever the Leviathan is or whatever the behemoth is. That's what's described here. And if God is able to make beasts like that, He's saying, can you compare to me, Job? Now, Job answered in, in chapter 42, as we close out. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So when Job got before God, what he finally understood was that he had really no right to question God because he's not on the same level. God's the creator. He's the creation. And God is too wonderful for him to know. He says, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the first usage of repent. So God, bef or Job before God recognizes, a Job, a righteous man before God recognizes his need to repent because he does not fit on the same plane as God, and he needs to repent in order to be saved. Now, after this, uh, in verse 7, it says, And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that my Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused, is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right my servant Job has. So after God deals with Job, and Job repents, he goes to the three friends that gave Job bad advice for such a long time and argued with him, and he tells them, you need to bring a sacrifice to Job, and Job will pray on your behalf. And I will only accept the sacrifices and prayer if Job prays for you. 
because Job has been righteous and you have spoken of me wrongly. Job has not. So Eliphaz the Temanite and uh, Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his two friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So Job's situation ends with after God has talked to him and Job has repented from even considering himself able to judge what God has done with twice as much as he had before he suffered. So now he's got twice as many kids, twice as much land, twice as much livestock, still one wife. Um, But she's not telling him to curse God and die anymore. Now it says at the end, the very last verse, or the last two, after, after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. So Job is completely restored, and then some. And that's the story of Job. But what's interesting here to me is so much of this connects to the story of Jesus. You know, Job was tested by God first by being stripped of his wealth, by being stripped of his glory. And that to me seems to be a good parallel of Jesus stepping off his throne in heaven and entering earth as a baby boy in the flesh, becoming human and getting himself off the throne, opening himself up to all of the pain and lament and temptation of the flesh. But then Job was tested again, physically. Everything but death for Job. But Jesus was tested unto death. He handed himself over to death. And then his restoration and resurrection gave forgiveness of sins for all that repent. Now, interestingly, also at the end of Job, that it's through Job, the one who suffered, that his friends are forgiven through the intercession of Job in his prayer. And Job acts himself as a foreshadowing of exactly what he prayed for when he asked God so desperately that a mediator would be there for him to connect to. Someone he could connect to on a human level that he could bring his case before God with. And Jesus acts as that mediator. Paul even writes, that there is one mediator between man and God, and it's Jesus Christ. And the man, Jesus Christ, is someone we can interact with on a human level. He's been through what we've been through and worse. But Jesus is also fully God and can restore our relationship with God by offering us his righteousness in place of our wickedness. And we can restore our relationship with God and be restored. And even in the end, Paul writes that not all of us may die, but all of us will be changed, meaning we will get new bodies, glorified bodies, so that we can really experience eternity at the resurrection with Christ. Meaning we're actually better off than we were before. Very similar to Job, who's given his end is twice as much as he had before. So that's the book of Job. That's how it ends. 
and uh, the parallels for me are pretty powerful. Um, so why does suffering happen? I don't know. But what I do know is that the same person who asked that question got put before God, and when he saw God, he realized it didn't matter. And that God was so great that what did matter was repenting and turning to him. So let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the story of Job. Thank you for the foreshadowing. Thank you so much that this ancient man had the wisdom to ask for a mediator. And thank you for granting that request through your plan. Thank you for sending your son. God, I pray that we hand our lives over to the mediator, to Jesus. That we repent from our sin and accept the sacrifice of the cross to restore us and to give us the righteousness of Christ so that we can be in your presence. God, while we don't have answers to every question, it's clear that we don't because we can't possibly have your perspective. You are greater than us. And it's a good thing to remember that, that we serve a God who is greater than us, but who also loves us enough to restore us. And I pray for restoration. And I pray for restoration of this area and for those who need to hear the gospel, that they would come to you and be restored. In Jesus' name, amen.